Let's go ahead and take a look together. Now, just in case you're a little rusty on the draw, Ezekiel is one of the major prophets. So get past Psalms in the Old Testament, and then Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, nice little book, and then Ezekiel, and that's where we'll pick up. All right, so Ezekiel is a prophet sent by God to the people of Israel. Similar to Isaiah, to Jeremiah. However, Ezekiel is somewhat unique in that his audience is the Jews who are in Babylon. Okay. Now, what you need to understand is that Ezekiel is part of what happens in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 8 through the end of the chapter where the king of Babylon comes into Jerusalem and he doesn't sack the city, but he does take kind of the cream of the crop of society. He takes the wealthy merchants. He takes the politicians. He takes King Jehoiachin. And in that group, he also takes Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel opens after he has been captured and marched in chains all the way to Babylon and has been resettled with the rest of the Jews there. And for the duration of his life, as well as the extent of his ministry, he ministers to that group, those Jews who are already living in Babylon because they have been deported. So uh, look with me here at verse 1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chabar Canal, the heavens opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. Okay, so five years after that passage in 2 Kings 24, he's sitting next to a river in Babylon, and it says here he has visions of God. And so, verse 3, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Now let's look at what he saw. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness all around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire as it was gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had human likeness, but each with four faces. Each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. So he sees in this cloud of glory and fire and lightning and smoke these four creatures 
with wings stretching out and touching each other at the tips like a box, each one standing in a cardinal direction, each one standing, if you will, in a corner. All of them have four faces of a man, of an ox, uh, of a lion, and of an eagle. And when they move, they don't walk, they don't fly, they just move back and forth. And they don't turn as they move, but since they have four faces, they head in the direction that they go. And if you keep reading here, on top of that, they're all perched on top of wheels, and not just wheels, but wheels within wheels. And they all kind of move as one. Ezekiel doesn't really know what he's looking at. He doesn't really know what he's seeing at this point. If you go all the way back to Exodus at Mount Sinai, or if you go back to the dedication of the tabernacle, when God is present in the smoke and the fire and the cloud, that'll get you a little bit close. Even in the tabernacle, you may remember, there were drawings of angels somewhat similar to these, who Ezekiel later calls cherubim, right on the fabric of the tent. Okay? Or if you think of the Ark of the Covenant with the angels bowing over it and their wings touching, there's similarities everywhere. But if we just stop here, we don't understand the point of this vision. It's not just um, unique, alien, strange. It actually has a purpose. And so notice here in uh, chapter 1, verse 26. And above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance. Okay, so get the picture here. There's these four angels. They create kind of this box. They have wheels on the bottom, and then there's a surface on top of it. Okay, so think of this like a very intricate table where every leg of the table is carved like this strange angelic being. Okay, but it's not a table at all. It's the foundation of a throne. Okay, a throne that is mobile, a throne that moves. And so as we keep reading here, there's a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness of human appearance, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was a brightness all around, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, which we would call a rainbow, so was the appearance of brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, that's who's on the throne. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard one speaking. So it begins, and he has this vision, and effectively, the vision he has is of God's throne, but the reason why that's jarring, you may remember, is because God's dwelling place is the temple in Jerusalem, which in Ezekiel's day is still standing. In fact, one of the um, difficulties that the Jews who had been deported faced was their dislocation from the presence of God in Jerusalem. Just read Psalm 137 where while these men and women are being marched there, their captors ask them for a psalm. And they say, why would we sing? We have nothing. We've hung up our harps. And the thing that they mourn the most is the loss of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth and never speak again. Because Jerusalem is the place where God dwells. And so the question becomes, as we open Ezekiel, what is God doing here in Babylon? But we also find here that the vision is coupled with a call. And this is pretty common. Read Isaiah chapter 6. 
look at when God, you know, appears to Moses in the burning bush and then calls him to redeem Israel. In the same way here, Ezekiel is given a commission. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke with me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to the nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house." And so Ezekiel is sent to his people. He's to give them a message, and the message we'll see is one of judgment. In fact, his message is going to be that Jerusalem will not stay standing, that the temple will no longer exist, that judgment hasn't come to its culmination yet. But also notice here that he recognizes that Ezekiel's audience is a stubborn one. In fact, there's a few terms in here I just want to point out again. Notice it says there in verse 3, I send you to the people of Israel to nations of rebels. Sounds grammatically weird, doesn't it? The people of Israel are not nations, plural. Why is that plural there? It's because it's the, the Hebrew word goy. If you read the Old Testament, there's two groups of people. There's the people of Israel and the nations. But here, that distinction is lost. They're just the nations of rebels. In fact, notice what he says in verse 6. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Not the house of Israel, but the house of rebels. Later, God will refer to them as Ezekiel's people and not his people. Okay? All of these terms are to, to paint the picture of where Israel is at. Ezekiel's calling is to proclaim that judgment on Jerusalem is imminent because even though Babylon has come in, taken the cream of the crop, deported their king, Jerusalem still hasn't repented. Israel still hasn't turned back to the Lord. As we will see, they're continuing in the same practices that led to that first deportation. And remember, they're not doing that in ignorance, but men like Jeremiah, men like Isaiah, have been speaking of these things, warning of these things for generations. And so in this sense, Ezekiel continues a long line of prophets, and in some other senses, he is the last. And so um, I do want to just point out something here is after this vision and commissioning, look at verse 15. And I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv who were dwelling by the Chabar Canal and I sat where they were dwelling and I sat overwhelmed among them for seven days. What we discover is that like many prophets before him, Ezekiel doesn't want the job. So God gives him this commission, he calls him to it, he tells him what to do, and instead, for seven days, Ezekiel just sits stunned. In fact, um, in fact, he tells us a few verses before this that he was filled with bitterness. 
resentment at the task. He doesn't want the job. And so what happens is basically God says, all right, since you are stubborn, since you are resistant, I'm going to take a little bit of your freedom of mobility. I'm going to take a little bit of your freedom of speech. From here on out until the day Jerusalem falls, which ends up being seven years, one year for every day, you're not going to have the ability to just walk out of your house and go to the grocery store. You're not going to have the ability to walk out of your house and start a conversation with your neighbor Joe. You're only going to leave the house when I have business for you, and you're going to only open your mouth when I have something to say. And so he lives under this constraint for seven years because of his unwillingness, because of his unbelief. He may not want the job, but God didn't ask. He's going to do it anyways. He didn't sit down to parlay with Ezekiel and say, I've got a proposition for you. He called him. And so he's going to learn that there's an easy way and a hard way. But for the next seven years, he'll only speak when God speaks through him. And he'll only move when God uh, unbinds him. What's interesting is, effectively, the rest of the first 11 chapters... He begins his ministry, and we see a couple of things that spiral through the rest of the book. The first is these sign acts, okay? So the prophets don't always come with a verbal message. Sometimes they come with a pantomime. Sometimes they come with, like, street art. Sometimes they come with an action that they develop. And that's especially appropriate here when Ezekiel isn't talking, In fact, if you read the next few chapters closely, it's hard to tell how often he actually opens his mouth. A good deal of what he does is just act out what God tells him to. And so um, these, these signs, this street performance, takes a bunch of different components and manifestations. And as I had suggested to you when we went through this, I think most of this should be understood as like Ezekiel's day job. And so he does these things every day from nine to five. And he's always, you know, on stage. And then there's a little sign that says, we'll return tomorrow at 9 a.m. And he comes back and does it again. Okay. And so all the motions we read about in chapters 4 and 5 are probably daily performances. As people pass through publicly, remember, uh, they'd see him over and over again to get the point. Let's just look at the first one just to get the feel for it in verse 1 of chapter 4. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem. And put siege works against it, and build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it. Set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And take an iron griddle, and place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and set your face towards it. And let it be in a stage of siege, and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. So the first thing he's told to do here is to act out, like a child playing in a backyard, the siege of Jerusalem. And so he builds his little, uh, you know, brick in the middle, and he writes Jerusalem on the top, and then he sets up his little dirt soldiers all around and battering, battering rams. He's just going through the motions. On top of that, look at verse 4. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long you shall bear the punishment of the house of Israel. 
And when you've completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah for 40 days. I assign you a day for each year, and you shall set your face towards the siege of Jerusalem with your arm barred, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side or to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. So not only does he set this up, but also for the first uh, 300 and 90 days, he lays on the left side of his body, and then he lays for 40 days on his right side, okay? Now, obviously, if we keep reading here, uh, we are given interpretation. We know what's going on, but Israel doesn't. And as I suggested to you, one of the reasons is because they're tired of repent messages. They're tired of thus saith the Lord. But a street performer, they're like, what's he doing, right? It's got some intrigue to it. It's got some curiosity to it. Uh, and so it seems here that God is taking the side door to communicate the truth. And then by the time we get Ezekiel, later in the ministry, after these things come to pass, they're like, do you think there's any connection between that, you know, year-long practice of, uh, you know, Ezekiel playing soldiers every day in the town square and the fact that Jerusalem's been destroyed, right? As we saw a chapter ago, at the end of this, they won't like you. They won't listen to you, but they will know that you are a prophet, okay? And so as we continue on here, um, let's look at another one of the sign gifts, this one in chapter 5. And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. And a third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. And a third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath the sword after them, and you shall take from them a small number and bind them on the skirts of your robe. And these again you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them into fire. From there a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. So again, put yourself in the shoes of, of these Babylonian exiles who are walking through town. And they see Ezekiel. And he's got a big sword and he's shaving his head with the sword. Okay? And his beard off. Both are abnormal things. Usually these are things that are only done, uh, you know, in times of mourning, but when they're done, they're done with small and appropriate tools. Think of how unwieldy a sword is. Think of how sharp it would have to be to cut hair off your head, you know. Usually a sword doesn't have to be terribly sharp because you're swinging it with all of your force, okay. It is not the right instrument for the job, but it's part of the image. And what he does is he divides his hair into three piles, and then he destroys them in different ways each one of them personifying um, how people are going to die in the siege. Some who are going to die during the siege because of famine, some who are going to die in fighting the Babylonians, and some who are going to be scattered to the winds in captivity. And so Ezekiel is performing these things, portraying what's going to happen. But he also is given a message and the message ultimately has to do with the word because, okay? One of the things that's really helpful to do when you study a book of the Bible is look for keywords. How do you know when words are key? 
Two ways. One, they're words that if you delete from the book, it loses its meaning, right? They're the ones that carry the most theological freight. They're the ones that the book pivots on, okay? But the second way is just look for words that are repeated. And interestingly, one of the words that Ezekiel uses more than any other Old Testament prophet is the word because. He's not just interested in portraying the coming judgment of Jerusalem. He's interested in connecting the cause and effect of that judgment. You see, at this time, there are other prophets who are basically saying, I have no idea why we were sacked, but God's going to set everything right. He's going to return Jehoiachin to the, to the throne. We're all going to go back to Jerusalem. Everything will be fine. And more importantly, there are others who are grumbling that God would forsake them, as if God is, you know, uh, asleep at the wheel, when in actuality, consistently, it's their unwillingness to turn away from their sins. And so, a lot of Ezekiel is walking back through both the history and the present happenings of the Jewish people to demonstrate that they are guilty before God. Okay. Now again, that can be very heavy for us sometimes uh, because it is a whole lot of judgment. But remember, when judgment comes as a warning instead of an event, it's always merciful. It's merciful because at this point, Jerusalem hasn't been destroyed. At this point, Ezekiel's audience could respond, repent, and turn back to the Lord. But will they? Let's look at chapter 7, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me and said, o, uh, And you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, An end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. And I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. My eyes will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So notice two things here. First, the judgment is seen as imminent. You guys have all seen the signs along the side of the freeway or on the television where it says the end is near, the end is nigh. Ezekiel uh, is even playing with the language of the day of the Lord, which is uh, standard fare of the prophets to talk about when God's judgment is coming, but he accelerates the timeline. And so it's not the end is near, it's the end is right now. It's happening right now. But the second thing I want you to notice in this passage is that uh, it says that I'm going to punish you while your abom abominations are in your midst. Okay? These are not what you did yesterday. Even as judgment is falling, they are in the midst of and participating in the things that God has called them out on. Uh, I remember watching uh, a trailer for the comedy film that I'm sure is not worth watching called Year One. Uh, but they portray Cain's killing of Abel. And so there's a fight, there's a wrestling, Cain kills Abel and he drops next to him and he begins to cry out and say, oh my brother, what have I done, what have I done? And suddenly Abel sits up and Cain just picks up the rock and kills him again. And he says it again, what have I done? What have I done? It's that type of thing. They're, they're not just caught with their hands in the cookie jar. All the way up to judgment, they are persisting in the behavior. They are stubborn as, and rebellious. Um, look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster 
Behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It is awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitants of the land. The time has come. The day is near, a day of tumult, and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish, punish you according to your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Now this may be surprising, but one of the punchlines of Ezekiel's message is God's faithfulness. In fact, that's one of the things that Israel as a nation is struggling with. Where is God in the destruction of the Babylonians? And Ezekiel has a lot to say about Israel's unfaithfulness, but he also has a lot to say about God's faithfulness. Because God, in pouring out this judgment, is keeping the promises that he made. In fact, uh, chapters 5 and chapters 6 here quote heavily from Leviticus 26. In Leviticus 26, God walks through kind of the if-then scenario of Israel's rebellion. Every escalation of care, every step he's going to take to get their attention, and the, you know, the rebellion will manifestly lead to judgment. And so effectively, Ezekiel portrays here that God is keeping his word, doing just as he said he would do. Now, one of the great things about Ezekiel is that's not the whole story. There's more that God has said. There's more that he will keep, but we have to wait on that for just a second. Jumping forward here, remember that where Ezekiel started was with the surprising revelation of God's presence and even his throne in Babylon. Here in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Ezekiel is transported back to Jerusalem, back to the temple, and he has a vision of the temple. In fact, this is really important for us to remember when we return next week, because the end of Ezekiel, the entire book, is the portraying of a new temple. And these visits, the visit to the temple that is and the visit to the temple that will be, are hung in the balance of the book. They're related to one another. But what does he find as he looks here? Ezekiel's given kind of a behind-the-scenes tour. When my dad uh, used to manage country clubs, we'd have these national conferences that he would go to. And they always involved just the raddest things. He would, he would do wine tasting with the sommeliers in Napa Valley or something like that. But one of them, he got to go on the underground tour of Disneyland. He saw the backside of the magic, right? He walked through the tunnels and saw the laundry and all the things that Disney doesn't want you to see. My dad has seen. That's what happens to Ezekiel here. He's taken to the temple, but he gets to see what's going on behind closed doors. And he is not looking back on history. This is not time travel. It's translocation. This is present tense in Ezekiel's day, what's, what's going on at the temple. Let's look in chapter 18, verse 1. In the sixth year of the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand, 
and took me by a lock of my head and in the spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and brought me in a vision of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where there was a seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley. So he's transported and he sees two things. One, the same glory of God, the same throne of the Lord that he saw, but as it should be there in Jerusalem and next to it, right in the northern gate, a big statue of a foreign God. Then it continues, verse 5, Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now towards the north. So I lifted my eyes towards the north, and behold, the north of the altar gate, in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you'll see greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beast and all the idols of the house of Israel. So here, behind closed doors, he finds just a closet full of inscriptions and idols of foreign gods. In verse 11, before them stood the 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. Going all the way back to the day of Moses, the elders were gathered into the number 70, and that was, you know, the, the leadership. In fact, when we get to the New Testament, they're called the Samhedrin, right? The 70 men that put Jesus to death, okay? Here it's the top echelon of the leaders of the entire nation of Israel, and they're in this room full of idols. It says, along with them, I saw Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, he's naming names, standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. So they're worshiping with incense. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders in the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Each in his room of pictures, for they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Okay. Now, understand what's going on there. Most likely, they're saying, look... God couldn't keep us safe. Babylon's already trampled us once. We need to find a better savior. Anytime I read something like this, I always think of that scene in The Mummy, the Brendan Fraser franchise, where that, there's that little stuttering helper, and he's terrified of everything. And when he comes to face-to-face -face with the mummy, he pulls out a necklace, and on it is religious charms from every religion. He's just fully prepared, and he just tries to hold one up after another as an emblem trying to stop what's about to happen. That's the mode that Israel's in. They've forsaken the Lord. They're looking for another Savior, not recognizing that the only one who can heal them is the one who hurt them in the first place. Verse 14, Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate to the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz, okay, mourning this uh, this death of a god uh, ritually. Um, and then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see greater abominations than these. In verse 16, he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the very entrance of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar were about 25 men, listen to this, with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, worshiping the sun towards the east. 
And he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose, some form of, of foreign worship. Then I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Now, what happens next is after he's given this tour of what's going on, he sees a vision. Remember how we saw also at the beginning of this the throne of God? And effectively what he sees is he sees this throne of God slowly leaving the temple and then heading east to Babylon. In other words, here in chapter 10, we get the answer to the implied question of chapter 1. And as he says here, I no longer reside in the, uh, in the temple because of the abominations. I have forsaken it, and in my absence will come judgment. Uh, just to get a picture of this, look at chapter 10, verse 15. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Chabar Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount from the earth, the wheels did not turn beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. When they mounted up, these mounted up with them for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. More importantly, verse 18, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes and they went out with the wheels beside them and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Okay. And so he sees, he sees this vision of God moving out, of God exiting the temple, of God forsaking Jerusalem. Now, chapter 11 is the conclusion of the introduction, just like the book of Genesis. The first 11 chapters um, touch on all the major themes of the book, and then the rest of the book returns to and ext extrapolates on those themes, which means two things. One, as you would expect, again, it reiterates the judgment that is coming on Israel and, uh, and its deservedness. Look at chapter 11, verse 5. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, saying, Thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that have come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in the city and have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat, and the city is the cauldron. But you shall be brought out from the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. And I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations around you. And so the first half of 11 focuses again on judgment, on the fact that they deserve it, but it continues on, and so notice verse 14, and the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, go far from the Lord. To us, this land is given for a possession. In other words, he says, those who are with you in Babylon, those in Jerusalem have said, good riddance. 
We're still here in Jerusalem because we are righteous, because we are God's faithful. You clearly were wicked, so God got rid of you. And he says, that's not what's going on at all. He continues, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Notice that word sanctuary, right? His temple is with his people, not Jerusalem. Those who are with him have the presence of God. Therefore, verse 17, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all its abominations, and I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. So judgment is coming, but judgment isn't the end of the story. God is going to bring them back to the land and then he's going to do something new. He's going to replace their stubborn, rebellious hearts of stone with a heart of flesh. As it says here, they're going to fill him, fill them with his spirit, just as happened to Ezekiel in the beginning of the book. This hope and this new thing that God is going to do is where Ezekiel will eventually get in the book. But that hope exists here in the introduction, and it's laid out, and God's going to make it so that he has a faithful people. But it's going to require him to do something. It's going to be, require his work. Later, Ezekiel refers to this as the new covenant, aligning it with Jeremiah chapter 31, pointing forward to what Jesus says is inaugurated in his death, burial, and resurrection. Remember when we partake of communion, this cup is the new covenant in my shed blood. And so the spirit that's promised here in Ezekiel chapter 11 and later in Ezekiel 34 is the one that we have been given in Jesus Christ. It's part of this hope that God gives Israel, but first comes judgment. In the same way that chapter 11 breaks into judgment and then hope, so also the rest of the book. Okay? It falls into two sections. First, with judgment from chapter 12 all the way to 32, where we will end tonight, and then it pivots in 33, and it turns to a message of hope. Okay? Which, after kind of an intense start to tonight is good incentive to come back next week because we're just going to clear all the judgment with a giant leap and then get into what God still has for his people. So in chapter 12 and on, Ezekiel makes a greater case for the because, for Israel's unfaithfulness, for their deservingness of judgment. And just like we saw in the beginning, there are also sign gifts here. And there's also a new thing. If you read these following chapters, what you'll find is some legal material where it's almost as if Ezekiel is having a mock court and he puts Israel on trial and presents evidence and witnesses to convict them. Okay. But in other places, he does what's similar to Jesus' parables. He's given visions and pictures, and he's like, you know what? Israel is like a grapevine. It can't be built with, and not only is it like a grapevine, it's a burned grapevine. You can't do anything with it. Israel is like an unfaithful bride. 
Israel is like two sisters. Israel is like a, uh, uh, a pride of lions. Over and over, he presents these visions all to make his point known. So, for example, look at chapter 15, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? Is the wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang a vessel on it? Behold, it's given to the fire for fuel. When the fire is consumed, both ends of it and the middle is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I've given to the fire for fuel, so I've given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem." In chapter 16, the image he uses is, of, uh, uses is of an unfaithful bride, but he doesn't pick up in the middle of the wedding. He actually goes all the way back to Israel's history as if God found a foundling, an abandoned child, saved its life, raised it. And then the metaphor changes, and he says, and when you came of age, I married you, and I took care of you. And then I gave you everything. I clothed you beautifully. I gave you a beautiful house and a lot of wealth. And what does that wife do with it? She begins to use that house and that wealth to pay her paramours, to chase after. In fact, at one point in chapter 16, Ezekiel says, actually, you're worse than a prostitute because a prostitute gets paid for sexual favors, but you're doing the one paying. Okay. In fact, Ezekiel 16 as well as 23 have some of the most sexually explicit and disturbing imagery of all of the Bible, even though it's toned back in the English language and it doesn't always come off. It's pretty extreme. And so like I said, there are other visions, a vision of two eagles and a vine where the vine grows up because an eagle plants it. And then the vine is looking in another direction and going, hey, that's an attractive eagle over there. And then the first eagle just pulls up the vine and its life is over. Okay? Each one of these points to a different way to think about what's going on in Israel. And they're told in story form because, as you know, sometimes stories convince us when we're unwilling to listen. Remember what happens with David? Here's David, king of Israel, bored on his throne stays home from war, spots a naked woman bathing, brings her home, commits adultery with her, gets her pregnant, has her husband killed to cover it up, and moves on with his life. And Nathan, who's not just a prophet, but a close advisor of David, sent by God, comes into the throne room and says, David, I want to talk to you about something. A man had a sheep. And he tells him this story of a poor man whose only belonging and only friend is this one sheep. It's a good illustration because David was a shepherd. He knows what it's like to be affectionate for barnyard animals. And he says, and then there was this rich neighbor who had everything, all sorts of livestock, and he was having guests over for dinner. And so he snuck into his poor neighbor's house, took his one and only lamb and killed it and fed it to his guests. And David jumps off his throne and he says, I tell you the truth, that man shall die. And Nathan says, David, you're the man. It's you. And suddenly, all of the self-preserving uh, excuses, all of the self-justification, 
all of the things that he had used to keep himself from conviction and repentance is gone. He didn't want to see it, and the story helped him see it. In the same way, Ezekiel's just going, all right, how about this? How about this? Right? God gives him differing messages to try and get Israel's attention. And remember, the date of the destruction of Jerusalem is growing ever closer. And then, like I said, some of the other things we have in here um, are more legal in nature. So just look at chapter 20, verse 1. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat beside me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Ezekiel, will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. And so what he begins to do here, these men come, they're, you know, probably visiting from Jerusalem. And they're like, while we're here, we hear there's a prophet. Let's sit down and talk to him. But remember, these are the same men that we saw worshiping idols in the back room of the temple. And so they sit down and they go, Ezekiel, tell us what, the, what God would say to us. And God says, I've only got one message for you. Repent. But what he does here is he walks through the history of Israel and he shows a persistent pattern of rebellion and unfaithfulness that goes all the way back to the wilderness. And he walks it through generation after generation after generation all the way until he gets to the audience he's speaking to, to the present day. And notice what he says, uh, verse 27. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord God, in this also your fathers blaspheme me by dealing treacherously with me. For when I brought them into the land that I swore to give them, then whenever they saw any high hill... Or any leafy tree, there they offered sacrifices. There they presented the provocation of their offering. There they sent up pleasing aromas. And there they poured out their drink offerings. I said to them, what is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day, which just means high place. But notice this, verse 30. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go whoring after their detestable things? And when you present your gifts and offerings up and you even offer your children in the fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What's in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. And so he reiterates and gives the message over and over again. It goes on and on. Like I said, in chapter 23, he takes the two kingdoms of Israel, the northern tribes, the ten tribes of Israel with Samaria as its capital, and then the southern tribes of Judah with Jerusalem as, as its capital, and he compares them to two sisters. And in this case, the younger sister, Jerusalem, that's still standing, watches everything that happens to her sister which ends in death and destruction by her own supposed lovers. She goes after the gods of the Assyrians, and it's the Assyrians that come in and destroy her. And then she goes, that's a good idea. In fact, you may remember from Israel's history that after Israel is sacked, Jerusalem buddies up with Assyria and goes, hey, why don't you just let us, you know, give us your lunch money, 
and you leave us alone and don't sack us. So they go to the same place that got Israel in trouble, but eventually they're drawn to a new lover, Babylon. And he says, don't you see the same thing's playing out except it's worse for you because you have an example as exhibit A. You know where this road leads and yet you still walk it. And so we come to the beginning of the end in chapter 24, verse 1. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Now, why would God tell him to make a note of it? Because remember, Babylon is hundreds of miles removed from Jerusalem, and there is no internet. He names the day the siege begins before his neighbors will hear about it by months. Okay? But it doesn't change the fact that it's happening. And so Ezekiel here says that it's going to happen. In fact, he doubles down here and he says it's going to happen and it's no longer reversible. In fact, what happens is the siege plays out for 18 months until Jerusalem is ultimately sacked. Notice verse 14. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds will you be judged, declares the Lord God. I've mentioned before many times as we've worked our way through the Old Testament that God is patient. It's one of the things that's revealed about God in Exodus. And remember the warning that God gives the people of Israel about where idolatry leads precedes this day by hundreds and hundreds of years. God is patient. But if God's patience never runs out, it's not patience at all, but indifference. The New Testament says the same thing. It says that the Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But because God cares about justice, and because in this case, as we've seen a couple of times tonight, Israel's worship of other gods played out in their life in violence. The slaughter of their children as they put them on the altar. The oppression of the poor and the widow as they got rich and saw that rich as being a manifestation of the blessing of their gods. It's all measured here together. And like, like Mirslav Wolf says, every day of God's patience is a day where injustice persists. It's a very costly mercy, a very costly grace. But here, Israel has come to the end of all the warnings, of all the promises. But again, remember the book of Ezekiel doesn't end here. There's more to come. Jerusalem will fall, but God's plans will not. What happens then after we get to this culmination and the siege begins in Jerusalem is a pivot. And if you look at chapter 25, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face towards the Ammonites. For the first time in the book, Ezekiel addresses a nation that's not his own people. In fact, over the course of chapter 25, he begins with the Ammonites, who are to the northeast of Israel, and then Moab and Seir, who are the east, and then Edom to the southeast, 
and then the Philistines to the west, their closest neighbors. And he basically says, because all of you have not, uh, not just committed the same sins of Israel, but are rubbing your hands about their destruction, you're next. It's coming for you too. And so he starts with the closest neighbors, and then in the following chapters, in some of the longest sections of the book, he takes on two nations in particular, Tyre and Egypt. Why? Why these two nations? Are they worse than other nations? No, they're more powerful than other nations. These are the ones that Israel is constantly turning to for protection. These are the ones who led the known world of the Middle East at that time. Tyre was the economic leader. They had a trade kingdom that went all across the Mediterranean. If you wanted to get something done financially, you had to talk to Tyre for the loan. Okay? Every country was in debt to Tyre, and for that reason, they were too big to fail. Nobody would attack Tyre because it would dismantle the entire world. It would topple the stock markets. Everything would be over. Everybody who may be envious of their position needed them too much to destroy them. And because of that, the king of Tyre starts to see himself as a divine figure on the human stage, as godlike. All of that power, all of that money, all of that influence, what he says goes. And so notice chapter 28, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud, and you've said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas. Yet you're but a man, and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and understanding, you've made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great wisdom and your trade, you've increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I'll bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you say I am a God in the presence of those who kill you? And what a line. That sounds like it should be in a Marvel movie. Though you were but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hands of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Now notice this does a couple of things. One, it shows us that God cares not just about Israel and their behavior, but about the nations of the world. And he's bringing Babylon here in here like a, uh, you know, when we say scourge, a scourge is something you scrub a pot with, okay? A scourge wipes the pot clean. That's what Babylon was going to be, not just for Israel, but all of their neighbors. Babylon is, uh, just behind the Assyrians, the next new world empire, okay? And just, just worth noting, after Babylon comes Persia. After Persia comes Greece. After Greece comes Rome. Okay? Behind every empire that sees itself as undefeatable and eternal is another. And that's part of God's consistent cycle of justice and judgment. But here he exalts himself, the prince of Tyre exalts himself as if he was a god, and he says, all right, let's see. Let's see how you stand against a real god. And it's the same with Egypt. 
In fact, the format of uh, the three chapters on Tyre and the three chapters of Egypt is basically the same, but I wanted to draw your attention to chapter 31, verse 1. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are like you in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and a forest of shade and towering height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it. The deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around its palace or around its place of planting, sending forth its stream to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large, its branches long from abundant water, and its shoots Jump down to verse 9. I made it beautiful. In the mass of its branches, all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. God says, Pharaoh, Egyptians, consider Assyria. Remember their greatness. Remember how you thought they were undefeatable. And then verse 10, therefore thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds, and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hands of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Why is he telling Egypt this? Because Egypt hasn't learned the lesson. Because just like Tyre, Pharaoh has exalted himself and seen himself like a god. In fact, I love chapter 32 because effectively what happens in chapter 32 is... Uh, God envisions a funeral procession for Pharaoh. And the procession heads to the graveyard and then goes down the steps right into the place of the dead. And as he's walking in, he sees every great king and ruler and nation there to greet him. And he sits down and it says that he's consoled in his grief. He's like, oh, I'm not the only one who's just a man. We're all just men. We're all just kingdoms. And this is where the first 32 chapters of Ezekiel end. With a laying out of the playing field. And here's what will happen in chapter 33. A refugee in rags, ragged in his breathing, will stumble into Babylon, having run the whole way with just one message. Jerusalem has fallen. But again, remember... Ezekiel doesn't just dust his hands and say, my job's over, it's too late now, and walk away. In some sense, this is only the beginning of his ministry. Remember what we read in chapter 1? They will not like you, they will not listen to you, but when I'm done, they will know that you are my prophet. And that's good news, because the prophecies in the first half of the book are about what's going to happen in seven years' time. The prophecies in the second half of the book extend to the consummation of all things, the end of everything. How is Israel to know that Ezekiel can be trusted when he starts to say, hey, God isn't actually finished. Hey, there's a hope after judgment. Hey, we're going to be restored to the land. Because remember, Egypt's not going to bring them back. Tyre's not going to save their butts. Jehoiachin's not going to return to the throne. All of the things they put their hope in is gone except God. And that was kind of the point. As we read, I think, four times tonight as we just skipped through the book, and you shall know that I am God. So, 
Return next week and we'll pick up and begin to look beyond judgment. Begin to look beyond the sack of Jerusalem. Begin to look into the second half of Ezekiel's book, book, which is best defined and described by hope. Hope for Israel. Hope for the nations. Hope for the world as we know it. Let's pray. Father, even in judgment, it is good news that you are faithful to your word. Especially because you've spoken more than words of judgment. And when you show yourself faithful to discipline in our lives, when you show yourself faithful to bring justice or deliverance for those who are oppressed, It manifestly goes together with judgment. It manifestly goes together with consequence. But even there, it also is paired with this indefatigable love, this impossibly solid commitment to pursue grace, to bring about salvation, to bring people back to you. We thank you for that. We thank you for the book of Ezekiel. And we pray for the weeks to come as we enter into this book more uh, that, that it wouldn't just be about the hope of Israel, but it would be about our hope, the steadfast and sure hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.